First things first. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Excited. I took the flag down, though, because of Mardi Gras. Got to switch it. You do, you do. It flew for a week. That's nice. I'm not... Are you feeling guilty? No. Jesus, shut up. I'm just giving you a background of why there's a different flag up. Don't worry, Jake. It's only your life. Are you trying to say Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? Where you going, mate? About 90 feet. Welcome to the Brackish Podcast. We are your hosts, not Cliff. Lynn. Cliff and I are in the booze cruise, and so it is Leonard's turn to take us downtown. Yeah. This is fun. I like being in the booze crew. Yeah, it is. It's much better here than there. It really well, is. Well, you've already yeah, dipped there, to the I, bottom I, of your booze there's crew. There's no you responsibility. Yeah, I'm gonna. Fi- I'm fixing to pour uh, a drink from a trace that Buffalo's Rum. I can't really say what the name is. Oh, okay. You know, not our sponsor yet. Yeah, not a sponsor. But you know, if they want to, we'll talk to them. We're here to serve anyone who's willing to pay us. <laughs> but you know. The LSU Tigers won the national championship, so we're super stoked about that. Go Tigers! Yeah. Yeah. Joe Burrow is our hero. Yeah, the guy is amazing. Uh, Great year. We don't, yeah, we don't even care about the Super Bowl. Enjoy it. Yes. Because it doesn't happen often. (laughs) Love that Louisiana football. We're talking about a guy who talked about Louisiana football today, right? We are. We're talking about Justin Wilson, who is a passionate LSU fan. Cliff had a few guesses on who Justin Wilson is. I had to be reminded of who he was, but Cliff. Oh, I just asked if he was the long lost brother of uh, Wilson Phillips, the band, got left out. You can sustain. (laughs) Before we get to him, you guys had some jokes, right? Oh, I know Cliff had a joke from last week. We did, I do. Um, Knox has a couple of dad jokes that he's very, very proud of. Super proud, but I'm not a dad. All right, so I'll I'll just say mine real quick. so Thomas Devereaux sitting at a bar and the bartender says, another round? And Devereaux says, yeah, the first two missed the mark. I'll take another shot of Hennessy. Mm. <laughs> Short and simple. Very good, very good, very good. All right, my, mine was, uh, y'all guys, uh, y'all heard about that pharmacist? Lost his job. No. Got a taste of his own medicine. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a dad joke. It was. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so I had to remind Knox of who this person is. Cliff has never heard of him. Tonight we are going to discuss Justin Wilson, a.k.a. the first Cajun celebrity chef. So like before Paul Prudhomme, before Emeril... I'm going to kick it up a little bit. Before both Before, of theirs. Um, okay, this dude was running a shot. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, and, and what he ended up doing on TV really shaped what a lot of Americans perceive as Cajun culture. Waterboy? Uh, that's exactly, dude. <laughs> the last section we're going to discuss is called the Bobby Boucher effect. Ooh, yes. very good. Yes. Because as much as this man loved Louisiana... He made people think some things about Louisiana that may or may not have been true. Fantastic. So, who is Justin Wilson? Justin Wilson is known as the first Cajun chef on TV. He was really popular in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and he was pretty much the only landmark for what the American people knew as Cajun culture. He predated Paul Perdome and Emeril Lagasse, who presented this really high-end New Orleans cuisine 
or somewhere in between New Orleans and country cooking. Justin was the kind of guy who presented the cooking of people who lived off the bayous, off the land, things that maybe weren't pretty, but were definitely tasty. He had a show that ran from the 1980s all the way through the reruns that are still played today. He made hundreds of appearances all over the, uh, the country through banquets and ducks, uh, unlimited conferences and things like that. He had tons of books. He was really well known for a couple of things. People would recognize him if they heard him speak because he had a very particular Cajun accent. This is just a flat old tater chip. It's just flat, it's just tater. It's just an old chip, but not this. It's a new Cajun spice ruffle potato chip. Where it was kind of that sing-songy accent. And he had a couple of catchphrases, things like, how y'all are? And he would say, I guarantee. Oh boy, they wanted him to I guarantee. And he would do the Cajun eye on TV and things like that. He wore red suspenders and a red kind of cowboy bolo bow tie and a red belt. In uh, all of his episodes, usually accompanied by the Canadian tuxedo. Yes. Blue button-down shirt. denim. Blue denim jeans. Oh, all right, all right. Yes. Mrs. Biff won't let me do that. <laughs> I didn't know you wanted to. Of course. Like, who, who doesn't want to wear a me? full denim outfit? <laughs> Good Lord. I know. You well, don't even own a denim shirt. You won't let me get it. You've been, jeez. I have before worn all denim to work and only to realize that my apron at work is also denim. Oh, that's even wonderful. That's just. It's it's hardcore Oregon is what it ends up looking like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. But Justin, back to this guy who was known for all of these things. Uh, he was the first face of really Cajun cooking in America. And it all started back in 1914. So let's... I don't know what that is. Going down the bayou, 1914. Here's the thing. Where Justin Wilson was born was not the bayou. Oh, shoot. So ironically, the first Cajun chef didn't grow up in Cajun country. He grew up in Tangibaho Parish. Mm. His mother was Cajun. His father happened to be in the Department of Agriculture for the state of Louisiana. So he grew up a lot of, uh, around a lot of high-end, swanky people who were more the, um, the aristocratic Southern crowd rather than the Cajun crowd that he perpetuated that he grew up in. If you guys would think about Louisiana like a boot-shaped state, there's a couple of divides that'll give you some clarity. So the first one, you divide North and South Louisiana at the ankle of the boot that our state is shaped like. Okay, fair Above enough. the ankle, Alexandria, Alexandria Shreveport, Bossier, I feel like Opelousas East is, you know, <laughs> as far as I'll go say Southern. Well, yeah. but that's that's the thing. Once you get to the ankle of Louisiana, a lot of people consider that the beginning of the American South, where you get the maybe y'alls and yeehaws versus the very French-influenced Cajun and Creole culture. So he kind of grew up in that borderline of fancy city, American Southern. His mother happened to be Cajun. What he would call himself in his comedy shows and such, he would call himself a half-bleed Cajun except he would say it in that Cajun accent, like he's a half bleed. Mm -hmm. 
And he would joke that it's a good thing he's a half bleed because he don't know if he could have handled a full dose. <laughs> His mother was an accomplished musician and composer well into her 90s. She would compose for famous musicians. She performed regularly and she was known throughout the entire community as one of the best cooks around. So not only did Justin inherit this kind of political charisma that his father had, he also inherited this kind of warmth and welcoming and creative energy from his mother's artistic side. He grew up in that kind of household. He really loved to spend time in the kitchen with his mom. So she taught him a lot about the Cajun cooking she grew up with. And this was also like, you know, 1914 into the 1920s, into the 1930s, when you start to hit the Great Depression, where even in the wealthier families in the South, you still hit hard times. So somewhere around his teenage years, he decided to leave home and take the burden off of his family a little bit, one less kid in the house. And he decided to go just hoboing around and he would work at whatever farms he uh, could find work at. So he would pick fruit. Eventually it wasn't just him picking fruits and vegetables. He was in charge of transportation. Now he was in charge of storage. And he really moved up the ladder really quickly as a teenager, kind of organizing and being efficient at things like fruit transportation. After a few years of kind of kicking it around the South, picking fruit, going hoboing around, eventually he came back home and decided he was going to go into the Rangers wanted to be part of the army, wanted to do something bigger with his life. And he went through the entire training, through ranger training and all. Oh, to school? Like through the ranger school? And to all? ranger school, yeah. Nice. Like through the army and cool. such. So he went through basic training. He uh, went through everything. And in the end, through all of his training, the military said, no, thank you. You are not physically fit. His eyesight wasn't awesome and, and, and little things like that. And he jokes that it's ridiculous that he crawled on his belly all the way across the length of Texas and the army still wouldn't take him. And that kind of like hyperbolic joke is one of the things he was really well known for. He made a lot of <laughs> ridiculous sounding jokes sound really, really good. So he says he crawls the length of Texas and the army still said he wasn't fit. So after that, after being rejected by the army to go into the, you know, the war at that point, he comes back home where he starts to work in uh, warehouses. He uses his field hand experience to kind of parlay that into a warehouse job where he's responsible now for the storage of fruit and vegetables. And if you listen to our Banana Man episode, you know that fruit and vegetable production has a really narrow margin. So anyone that's good at that is valued and prized because it means the guys at the tippy top of that pyramid get to take a big fat check home instead of a, oops, all ban my bananas spoiled on the voyage home yeah. check, right? So he's doing that for a little bit and eventually gets noticed by Huey P. Long, one of what? the most infamous he got two bridges oh he got two bridges i think he has a library oh good for him i there's gotta there's gotta, there's gotta be. be a library right uh well, well yeah well <laughs> someone will let us know if there's not a kiwi p library i'm sure mm -hmm. hopefully one day we'll get a brackish bridge <laughs> yes i've always wanted that you know a little statue a little would it be bridge a bridge over brackish waters definitely instead of troubled waters definitely yes. it would be definitely like another another like train bridge yeah no 
You know, no, ours is going to be a a, a causeway that you s get on it like you do at the beginning of the car wash, and it just zips you. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to. You don't even do nothing. You just chill out and you let it take you. Just locks wheels in and just boom. Boop. Yeah, that's that sounds good for the future. Yeah, I like that. Brackish bridge. Let's make it happen, people. It's so alliterative. <laughs> ah. All right, so Huey Long makes him the chief warehouse inspector for the state. Keep in mind, 1934, the Great Depression. Everyone is panicking, businesses are plummeting, and something people have started doing to recoup their losses is burn their warehouses down to claim the insurance money. It's such an intense time in in American history that a lot of chief inspectors were actually deputized. Oh. I mean, you're dealing with fraud, yeah, you're right. dealing with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and the way Justin tells it, Huey P. Long basically told him, your word is law. He had to be deputized in order to fulfill his commitments to the fullest extent. Is he in Baton Rouge at this time or is he? I'm, you know, we don't know. The capital is Baton Rouge, but he yeah. would have traveled all over to do inspections and sure. things like that. Yeah. But he started deputized in 1934 and remained deputized through his entire life, helping out in the community and things like that in a volunteer capacity. But he really, really loved that. He also, I think, kind of loved the fact that his word was law. Yeah, who you doesn't? Know? Who wouldn't love that? Took his job super seriously. Uh, he sounds like a super serious dude, okay? There so, is a war going on, and I want to be a ranger? Come on. Here's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's frontline stuff. Right? That's the thing. He took all of this super seriously. He was a ranger. He was a chief inspector. Underneath all this, all the man wanted to do was tell stories. Coach Ogeron. Google Play. Oh, fuck. Oh, we, oh, we had a good team, and uh, we're going to come here today, and tonight, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> we're going to we're gonna Google Play, we're going to Apple Podcasts, we're going to Instagram, Apple we're going to Facebook, and we're also going to the Brackish Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, go go Tigers. That's for the state of Louisiana. And the very parish of Tannibal Hope. Keep on the foolish. I know you. All the man wanted to do was tell stories. And it shows a lot in his parentage, like he's got that seriousness and that political drive of his daddy, but his mom is so creative, he still has that expressive side of him. Thing was, he struggled as a storyteller because he was so serious. So while we may be in the 1940s when he's a chief inspector, let's choo-choo-choo-choo-choo back just a little bit. 1935. Justin Wilson and his buddies are college students at LSU. He says this is one of the five times he tried to move past his freshman year of college. You know, a lot of people go to college for seven years. I know, they're called doctors. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> he and his buddies are just out around campus at a nondescript bar, hanging out, being Louisiana boys, where they see out the corner of their eye 
Will Rogers. The cowboy. Notable cowboy, storyteller, humorist of the 1930s. He was traveling through the U.S. incognito, just trying to get some experience for some new material. These boys recognize him. And Justin and his friends end up spending six hours picking the brain of this brilliant humorist. Nice. Nice. As Will and Justin are talking, Justin says Will loves his stories about Cajun country whenever Justin would slip into the patois, meaning the like regional dialect of the Acadians or the Cajuns that he was hanging out with. Will told him, these stories are incredible. You've got to try to tell them. You've got to keep trying. Just make sure when you tell these stories, you tell them clean. And even though you tell them silly, you gotta tell the audience something serious or they're just gonna think you're a fool. And those words just took with this man from that college age on. So he had it in the back of his mind. He wanted to be a storyteller and he had this drive from uh, Will Rogers. A chance meeting. A chance meeting. This was also just a few months before Will Rogers dies in a tragic plane crash. Here's the thing. All throughout Justin's early career, he's had Will Rogers' words kind of ringing in the back of his head. You're good at storytelling. You've got something in this Cajun kind of uh, culture that you want to express. Hold on to that. Justin goes through a couple of struggles. He goes through ranger camp. He goes through a couple of years at LSU. He goes through his first few years of being a safety inspector, handling all of it a little bit seriously, not doing so well at it. Eventually, he switches over to becoming a safety engineer instructor. Still not the most glamorous of public speaking positions, but he's still good at conveying information. So that's what he decided to do for a little bit. The problem with being a safety engineer instructor is that mess is boring. He would often have his audiences kind of nodding off every now and then. He said of himself, he took it so seriously, people would go to sleep. So instead of watching these people constantly kind of zone in and out, what he uh, decided to do was tap into the advice that Will Rogers had given him about 10 years ago. What he said was, so having lived all my life among the Cajuns of Louisiana and having a good memory for Patois and the type of humor Cajuns go for, I started interspersing my talks on safety with Cajun humor. I deal with the number one cause of accidents, people. But if you talk over 10 minutes about safety, you're going to lose your audience. So I tell stories. I make a sandwich. A little bread, a little meat, and some dressing. That's how you do it. I'm, I'm hungry. And as an enforcement officer, I found that if someone was in good humor, I could get more done with them. So from his teaching days, he decided that he was going to incorporate humor and stories and humanity into what he did to make it much more engaging. And he kind of took off from there. He went from teaching safety engineering classes in Louisiana. Eventually, he was cherry-picked by a company in Chicago. The move to Chicago was a pretty big deal for him. He loved living in Louisiana. He didn't want to move away. So at first, when he signed that contract, he had it in his contract that they would pay for him to have a train ride home every other weekend. 
He didn't want to spend more than 10 days away from home. And even till uh, until his busiest schedule between cooking show tapings and appearances and things like that, he still required he not be gone longer than 10 days from his home. He does that for two years. Week and a half in Chicago, couple of days in Louisiana, back and forth like that. Eventually he has enough of that. He comes home and decides that he's just gonna travel to do all of his meetings and things. One day, one fateful day in 1945, Justin is actually driving home from Chicago and gets into an accident that nearly kills him. Ooh. He's in the hospital for 21 months. 21? 56 <clears throat> fractures, wow. 14 dislocations. There was almost not this guy. There was almost not this guy. He almost died in this car accident. He was in the hospital for so long. He became hooked on narcotics, which again, we almost lost him there. He leaves the hospital with a slight limp that eventually turns into something he needs a cane for that you could see on his later shows. He leaves the hospital with a scar that runs half the length of his face. That's pretty noticeable. But he also leaves the hospital with a fire in his belly because he actually lived through not just the accident or the recovery, but the man kicked his narcotics habit cold turkey when he right. left the hospital. So he leaves and he decides enough of this. I'm gonna live my life. I'm gonna do what makes me happy. And he headfirst plunges into the public speaking arena. All right. Right. Keeping in mind the words of real Will Rogers the entire time, tell them clean, but tell them something serious so they don't think you're a fool. So what he ends up doing is leaning on the culture that he not just grew up in with his mother, not just absorbed by the men he taught in his safety training classes, but also the class he grew up with. So he starts to do, he starts to develop this public persona that most people would recognize if you knew who he was. He had a very, very Cajun heavy accent where sometimes the people who did the closed captioning would have to call and ask, hey, what is he actually saying? He had to uh, present a certain amount of silly, because if you know anything about Cajun culture, our humor is a little, we'll call it ribbing. Cajun, Cajun humor is, it's a little dark, it's a little ribbing, it's a little silly, because in the end, when you're a Cajun, you're living out, the out in the bayous with your people. So what do you joke about? What do you make fun of? You make fun of yourself and you make fun of your own people. Your skin so dry look like the alligator. Say what? Your skin so dry look like the alligator. Ah. <laughs> it's ribbing for everyone's pleasure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Ooh. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> so he gets his stuff. He gets to start at smaller events, a couple of banquets, a couple of local affairs, like, like he's got some connections in the government because of who his father was. So maybe he speaks at a ball. Maybe he speaks at, like I said, Ducks Unlimited in Louisiana, things like that. And he eventually gains a name for himself as someone who can hold an audience with not just information like salesmanship or safety, but he can also capture an audience with his humor and his stories. 
And this is where not only he excels, but he also kinds of earn a reputation in Louisiana. Because what he starts to lean in on is the stereotype of the people he spent time with and grew up around. While his mother was Cajun and kind of a high-class composer, the men he hung out with in Cajun country were oil refinery men. They were lumbermen. They were hard workers. They told some stories. They talked about the ladies they had been with. They used a particular kind of language that wasn't appropriate for public in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So that advice that Will Rogers gave him to tell him clean went a long way because he was able to rein in some of the darker humor. But as he did that, he sometimes did that at the sacrifice of Cajun people looking a little silly, maybe a little stupid, a little dumb. Because once you take away the dirty humor, what do you have left? Ha 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 ha. You right. stupid. And I know you're stupid because I know you. So that was the kind of stuff he tended to lean on. He would joke about things like the LSU Tigers fans, which, as we addressed at the beginning of the episode, go Tigers. Go Tigers. He would joke about the people who rooted for LSU. He would call them the most devoted fans of college football in the country. They were so devoted that they would bet on the replay. He told jokes like he saw a little boy standing on the side of the road down the bayou and the little boy had a chicken hawk with a wingspan of about six feet long. The chicken hawk was so big, it was touching the ground as the little boy held it up. So Justin pulls over on the side of the road and says, boy, what you plan on doing with that big chicken hawk? And the little boy says, I plan on making a gumbo. And Justin's taken back a little bit. He never heard of a chicken hawk gumbo. So he asks the boy, may I gotta ask, How's a chicken hawk doing a gumbo? And the little Cajun boy answers him, mm, about the same as owl. <laughs> nice. So those were the kinds of jokes he was known for, where people went, huh? Wait, are people really like that in Louisiana? But the jokes he told. Kinda, yeah, but yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But that's the thing, they're kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like that, not really though. So he gains his popularity towards the 1950s, making the circuits and the banquets and the Ducks Unlimited and the conventions and things like that. Eventually, he spins that into a couple of different things. He started to release comedy albums. In 1961, he released his first album. That was his catchphrase, I guarantee, which is in English. I guarantee. I literally was just fixing to say, it sounds like a stand-up comedian on a circuit with him going to the, like, doing this venue, doing that venue, doing that. And there you go. There That's is. exactly what he was doing. Except he never called himself a comedian. There were two things he did not like being called. He did not like being called a comedian. He liked being a humorist, meaning he observed things in a funny way. And he hated being called a chef. Though what he is most known for is cooking on TV. Uh, that's very true. They get paid a lot. Uh, thank you. Why couldn't we get paid that in high school? For being on like the the secretary. Of treasurer for yeah, your high key school. Club. Deciding. <laughs> deciding. To we'll be. <laughs> you're like. Key club treasurer from... gets 150 grand. For what? 
I don't know, just making up stuff and... Right, because that's because you didn't steal from Key Club. The politicians <laughs> literally... What was Key Club? Uh, you did good things in the community. Well, right? we should have stolen from Key Club. No. And then we... What? But that's what politicians do. I know, but sense, we'd have given right? it to something else. I'm not saying... No, you steal... The politicians steal from something to give to another. That's right. To their vacation funds. Right, that's what I'm... No. Yeah. yeah, to something that no one knows about. It's fantastic. <laughs> Not a big deal. Anyway, continue. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. All right, wrapping up the episode. <laughs> Eventually, in 1961, lands his first album release called I Guarantee. And in that, he tells the stories of the Cajun people, some silly stories, some legend, some folktale, and has such success that he continues to release 27 other albums over the course of his lifetime. Damn. At one point, outselling Mr. Elvis Presley. Whoa! Wow. Yes. Which, let's say Elvis, also from this area, from Mississippi, not True. Louisiana, but right, where right. did he get famous? The Louisiana Hayride. So can Louisiana claim Elvis as well? For sure. Yes. Will we? Yes. Yeah. Does Louisiana claim anything good that tromps through its borders? Yes. For sure. In 1965, he wrote the first of 10 cookbooks. In 1971, someone from the Mississippi Educational Television approaches him. The way he tells this story, he's sitting in a little restaurant in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Kind of around Baton Rouge. It's west of Tangipahoe. It's west of Tangipahoe. It's got a lot of bayou. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of bayou people. It's got a lot of people who stay isolated and unto themselves. And this is where Justin decided to settle himself as an adult. He's sitting in a little bitty restaurant and someone from Mississippi Educational Television approaches him and says, Justin, I have an idea. I think you could make an excellent cooking show. Justin tells him, I think you're wrong. And the guy says, no, hear me out. I feel like you've got something special between the way you deliver, your unique point of view, and the audience I'm going for. And from there, in 1971, they decide to make the show Louisiana Cooking. This show was the first Cajun show on any sort of national television. And Justin took that really, really seriously to be the representative for all of Cajun culture to the United States. And what he decided to do was go back to 1935, all the way in the 1970s and say, I'm gonna tell them clean, but I'm gonna tell them something serious so they don't think I'm a complete fool. And he takes that word and goes seriously about putting forth Louisiana cooking in a way that was accessible and funny and silly, but still ultimately really, really tasty. His shows are still running today. He recorded more than a hundred episodes and even went back and recorded kind of bookends for his first couple of episodes that gave some context and some history around the things he had shared with people. He did that all the way through until the 1990s. Uh, the man ended up passing away in 2001 of just natural causes, mm -hmm. old age and happy life. 
14. Yeah, 1914. Yeah. 14 to 2001, he <laughs> lived a happy, busy, productive life. Yeah. Between that, he had several careers. He also had several wives. Wife one, divorce. Wife two, divorce. Yeah. Wife three, 20 years of marriage, several children. She passes away. Oh, okay. Right. Lives a while without her. Right. Eventually, he's just looking for an assistant. A friend recommends Janine, a co an LSU grad student, who says, I think she'd be great at this job. They meet, they connect, the sparks fly, and within five months of meeting this college graduate student, they are married. Ooh. How old is he now? 60? He's in his 60s. And she's a graduate student, so maybe like she's 25? Maybe. He was always kind of <laughs> mysterious about his age. He never liked to talk about how old he was. Yeah, I'm 34. Yeah. No, he was not. <laughs> no, no. He looks 60 in his shoes in the 70s. Ain't no way. He does look, no. he does always just look old. You know, you know look at him. So what Mrs. Cliff just said is good thing they didn't have HD. Here's the thing about that. Them not having HD contributed to a lot of the misunderstandings about Cajun food that he did not mean to perpetrate. He did talk a lot about using black pepper and cayenne pepper and red pepper and white pepper because that makes a really round flavor that has some heat without being overwhelming. But in 1970, 1980 television, when it wasn't high def, do you know what all that pepper looked like? It looked like burnt Ooh. oh yeah that's true yeah yeah so that that kind of perpetrated that whole like cajun food is blackened as burnt oh. and that was very inadvertent we'll talk about that in part two also known as part two the bobby boucher effect oh well guess what his fourth wife she definitely didn't have H, but she definitely had D. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's what it is. What? What? I don't know. No. What good. do you mean? Yikes. She said it was the end. What, is, what does H mean? What does H if she, didn't, if she was getting D? What is, I don't even. What was she not who getting? Who cares? <laughs> Doesn't matter. She was getting D. That's all that matters. <laughs> Lynn, that was perfect. I mean, this guy is awesome. All right. Yeah, Justin, this is great. Uh, came from the Tangible Ho. Yeah, Tangible Ho. I got people there, like Britney yeah. Spears. No, Britney Spears, no Britney Spears is from Keywood. Right, from but, like. But that's. Britney Spears is from Keywood. That's Washington. Washington. Right? Is that Washington? Yeah, Britney Washington. Spears from Washington. Right, but never it's okay. mind this clip. But you know, but you're in the same area, yeah, like Britney. They're yeah. up there. They're yeah. up, they're close to Mississippi. No, I'm you telling you, they off the interstate. Spears and Justin Wilson, they yeah. could be cousins possibly. They that close? Like they like what? Twenty miles away? No, yeah, they're off the interstate. It's, yeah, it's very close. They're super super close, and this dude not only. Um, met Will Rogers right before his death and like got inspired That's by him. Nuts. The he also 21 months in a hospital. How do you deal with 21 months in a hospital? You get three days in a hospital, bro. And they like come And up. it's 20 grand. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like 
21 months back, I mean, now? Uh, no. Jeez, and Pete, no. you might as well just lease a house. And then That's... they give you a drug addiction at the same time? Well, no, sh I mean, if you're in the hospital for 21 months, you're gonna have a damn drug addiction. That's for what sure. I'm, yeah. It's unbelievable. So, kick that, kick that, uh, then became a TV chef, and then made what we know today as Louisiana television culture. All right? It's crazy. I mean, it's swamp, like swamp people before swamp. It's people. like it really is. I mean, you got you got this stand-up comedian sort of action who mm -hmm. used to do all this stuff, and then now brings that to the table to a cooking show. Well, and I think what we're going to talk about next time is the effect he had on the American perception of Louisiana and Cajun culture. It's important to know where he came from, for sure. For, oh, yeah. But to understand his after effect and what that made people think of Louisiana natives is the more important thing. Because there's a lot of misconceptions about what Cajun culture is, down to the Bobby Boucher effect, where people who I deal with in my classes ask me things sillily but seriously as well like did you ride a gator to work well Ma Ma no. mama says mama, mama says, says gators are so because they got so many teeth but they ain't got no toothbrush well we've we've decided lynn that we're only going to drop on tuesdays I'm good with that. So we can say, if you don't hear us this Tuesday, we'll see you next Tuesday. We'll see you next Tuesday. And if you don't hear us the Tuesday after that, we'll see you next Tuesday. We'll see you the Tuesday after that. We will that. always see you next Tuesday.